This is part two in a two-part series. Please, listen to part one before continuing with this episode. This series includes brief mention of suicide and drug use. It also discusses domestic violence, child abuse, and other forms of violence. Listener discretion is advised. If you're experiencing domestic abuse, you can reach out for support in the U.S. to 800-799-SAFE. This is The Fall Line. Last episode, we introduced you to the case of Patrick Allen Guild, an Arizonian who moved to Nashville in the mid-1980s with hopes of making it big in the country music industry. Pat had decided on a stage name for himself before he ever moved. He chose P.G. Allen. That's what his brother later told Nashville Metro Police. We aren't sure whether Pat was actually set on performing as a country music singer, but we know that he wanted to sell his songs to the big Nashville publishers. Songwriting was and is a serious industry in that town, and Pat Gill thought he could make it there, if he could just get the right meeting with the right person. Pat Gill lived in Nashville for six or seven years, as far as we know. That's where both official records and family recollections end. But because of reporting in the Tennessean, official records from the Nashville court system filed by his estranged partner and a smattering of arrest records, we know a few other things. At the time he disappeared, Pat Guild was living in a camp by the I-24, I-40 overpass near the Cumberland River, where unhoused individuals had constructed semi-permanent and permanent housing, like small cabins and other substantial shelter. As early as 1984, the Nashville media was calling this area Tent City, but according to the camp's founder, a man named Bill Hardin, residents weren't using that name themselves. In November of 1989, when Pat Guild was featured in a Tennessean article on homelessness in Nashville, the cabin that he'd built under the overpass was highlighted, as was his difficulty in breaking into the music business. The article showed a piece of Pat's life, just like any media is, like a picture of Pat sitting in front of his cabin, smiling crookedly at the camera. It told part of his story. But there was a lot more. Pat mentioned that he'd come from Arizona, but he didn't say he'd separated from his wife, who'd taken his daughter to the West Coast some years before. And that daughter, Shannon, tells us that her mother left due to domestic violence, and that she spent years making sure that Pat couldn't easily track them down. Shannon's mother did keep in some contact with Pat's family back in Arizona, so they did get occasional updates on Shannon, who'd only been two when her mother left. But she made sure that Pat never found out where they were. As we told you last time, there are different versions of the Pat Guild that his daughter Shannon has been piecing together so that she can finally understand what might have happened to her father after he was last heard from in 1991, a man that was a dreamer, a resourceful person who built a cabin in less than two weeks from cast-off material, someone who'd experienced extreme trauma when he walked in, as a teen, on the scene of his own father's suicide and someone who then grew up, as two separate women confirmed, to commit domestic violence. 
Though Shannon had no contact with Pat Guild after her mother moved, she got what information her mother could pass on as she grew up. When she was 15, she found out that Pat had another child, a daughter, in 1990. Shannon would have been around nine when her half-sister was born. Her sister's mother had lived with Pat in Nashville in the encampment highlighted in the Tennessean newspaper. Her sister's mother had sought out an order of protection against Pat and had it granted after suffering what she described as extreme violence. Because Shannon's sister was raised primarily by relatives, she didn't have much information to offer Shannon about Pat's life in Nashville or where he might have gone after December of 1991. December 1991 is, approximately, the last clear mark on Pat's trail. As Shannon became an adult and had her own children, it grew increasingly important to her that she find out what happened to her father. She understands why her own mother and Pat's family and his other former partner and her half-sister don't have that interest, but it's something that she needs to do for herself. So she set out to try and discover where exactly Pat might have gone once his country music dreams didn't materialize or if he'd even managed to leave Nashville alive at all. Last time, we told you that Shannon enlisted the help of Detective Matthew Filter of the Metro Nashville Police Department to help her in this search. He began his research into Pat's time in Nashville, but he was running on information several decades cold. The community known as Tent City was really on state-owned property, and it was it was off the beaten path. In fact, I mean, I guess a lot of the locals knew it was there. I mean, obviously the police were aware of its presence, but I think because it was so far off the beaten path, it nobody really bothered them back there because they were kind of out of sight, out of mind. And that community stayed around forever. That tent city community was destroyed in the 2010 flood. And before, up to that point, that that tent city was there. I mean, I joined the police department in 1998, and it was there that entire time. So for about 12 years, it remained there. With regard to what he learned about Pat, here's what Detective Filter told us. I got the impression that uh, he could be very charismatic, and that made him popular with others. But at the same time, he he had an anger issue, which I don't know if that was more drug and alcohol induced or if it was more of a personality trait. But he he did uh, get angry and had quite a quite a temper on him from what I've been told. But I think because of all the because of who he was, a lot of people remembered him or at least knew of him at the time. So he wasn't really a complete stranger, especially in the homeless community back then. But and of course, in today's, in it today, it's very difficult to try to track down a lot of these people that were living homeless because they've either moved on or are deceased or developed a, a new life for themselves somewhere down the road. I've reached out to the homeless advocate groups and have not gathered any information on him. The camp tent city that he lived in, as I had said before, was destroyed by the 2010 flood. 
And all the people that I identified that knew Pat, I've either interviewed them or they're deceased. And here's how Detective Filter's investigation began. After he and Shannon officially filed the missing persons report for Pat, he had to try and trace the movements of someone who'd been last seen, as far as we know, more than 20 years before. One of the first things Detective Filter did was reach out to current and former operators of shelters and food banks in the Nashville area. As you might imagine, many of those organizations did not have digitized records from the 80s and early 1990s. He did discover that one of those community centers, the Harvest Food Bank, kept, quote, index cards of information on all the homeless people that came and got food, and that the original organizers did recall a man that they thought might be Pat. They also recalled a cabin, but they no longer had those note cards. The records were, quote, purged about two years prior, according to the investigator's call, so around the year 2020. One of the original staff members recalled a man who'd lived in a cabin, giving them contact information for his family, quote, in case something ever happened to him, but that would have been close to 30 years before. And they couldn't be certain that it was Pat. There had been several permanent and semi-permanent dwellings at the overpass, some that resembled cabins. When Detective Filter spoke to Pat's family, and specifically to his youngest brother, Pat's brother confirmed that they hadn't heard from him, but suggested that if Pat was alive, he would likely live in an area with an active music scene. The detective also followed up on old addresses and any other information listed on previous driver's licenses. He was also able to establish contact with the mother of Pat Guild's youngest daughter. For this podcast, we're going to call his former partner Alice, not her real name, for the purposes of this episode's clarity, as we have several important details to share. Though Alice remained in Nashville for a decade after she left Pat, they had no contact. After Alice was granted an emergency protective order against him, there was nothing else. Alice's daughter was only a few months old when that order was granted and had no further information that she could share about her biological father. Alice was able to offer a few important details that added a little context and which might hint at what happened to Pat. Though Alice didn't see him after her order of protection was granted, she did hear about him again. Alice said that when she and Pat were together, four other people, two couples, lived at the encampment with them. She recalled Pat described himself as a pipe fitter, but that he was also a good frame carpenter, and that he mostly got work through a temp agency in town. At that point, he hadn't sold any songs that might support them financially. Alice herself was working at a local bar, which was a point of contention in their relationship. Pat had issues with an ex-boyfriend of hers, a man who went by the nickname of Duke. He's since passed away, so we'll use that nickname here. According to Alice, Pat took issue with Duke speaking to Alice at the bar. It didn't matter to Pat that Duke was in a new relationship and that Duke and Alice were simply friends. When Alice interviewed with Detective Filter in 2019, she told him that Duke's new girlfriend actually worked at the same bar that she did. The new girlfriend, who we'll call Marie for clarity, but that's not her real name either, would eventually marry Duke, but that didn't affect Pat's dislike of him. 
Per a description of Alice's recollection, quote, Patrick Gill got angry at Duke one night because he thought Duke was bothering Alice at work. Patrick Gill took Duke behind the bar and beat him badly. This behavior was, based on other reports and recollections from Pat's family, apparently not out of character. However, Duke was, according to Alice, not a violent person, and, quote, he'd never harmed her while they dated. However, she did believe that Duke was, quote, capable of violence. After all, she recalled that he'd both fought in the Vietnam War and belonged to the Hells Angels in Orange County, California. This information stuck with Alice, because a few weeks after she got her order of protection against Pat, she spoke with Duke at the bar, and she asked him if he'd seen Pat around. And that's when Duke reportedly told Alice that he had, quote, taken care of him. What did Duke mean? Alice didn't ask. As she told Metro Nashville police, she just didn't want to know. But she thought Duke might have gotten his revenge for the beating he'd received from Pat, If Duke had killed Pat, she thought that he would have disposed of his remains nearby, maybe even in the Cumberland River. Duke would have needed help with that, of course, and Alice did have thoughts as to who might have been involved if that had been the case. But she could only recall first names, and that was not a lead that Detective Filter could easily follow. And what if Pat hadn't been hurt by Duke, if he'd left town voluntarily? Alice wasn't sure where he might have gone. She certainly hadn't seen him again in Nashville. She recalled that Pat had talked about going to Yuma, Arizona, but Alice doubted he'd really return there because, quote, of the bad memories of his childhood. She also remembered that he had friends in Irvine, Texas, but wasn't sure if they'd put him up for any length of time. When Alice spoke with the police, she also mentioned that Pat allegedly used IV drugs. She did not specify which kind, which could mean that an accidental overdose was another possible answer to his disappearance. Though she was able to name the person who Pat most often used with, Detective Filter discovered the man could not be questioned. He died in 2015. The strongest lead offered by Alice was what Duke had told her all those years ago at the bar, and Detective Filter was able to track down Marie, the woman who'd married Duke, and attempted to question her as well. But Marie did not want to speak with him. In fact, she had a stronger reaction than simply declining to be interviewed. There was a woman who supposedly knew Pat really well and whose husband, who is now deceased, may be responsible for his disappearance, completely denied knowing him at all. I really expected her to at least acknowledge knowing him and considering her husband is deceased would maybe tell me what she knew if her husband was responsible for Pat's disappearance. But even after showing her a picture of him that was taken back in the 90s, she still denied knowing him at all. Now, I don't know if she truly didn't remember because she was a part of the homeless community and had substance abuse issues herself back in those days. And just because of that, she her memory was just really bad. Or if she knew or has some idea or knows what happened to Pat and just doesn't want to share it um, because she made the comment to me that that she 
didn't want anything to do with that life and that she had moved on. Based on police files and our interviews, there's no clear conclusion as to how much Marie really knew. She wouldn't speak to Detective Filter. Shannon, Pat's daughter, has considered reaching out to see if she might have more luck, but she's ultimately decided that Marie seemed set not on discussing what, if anything, she knew. So was Pat murdered in Nashville? Detective Filter thinks it's possible, probable even, that Pat was met with foul play. But where, he can't say. There have been a few vague leads to follow up on, but nothing that strongly suggests proof. For instance, in March of 2019, Pat's former partner, Alice, remembered another possible lead and called Detective Filter with that information. According to police records, she, quote, remembered Patrick Guild talking to a record producer about going to Ireland and making some recordings. So, Detective Filter followed up with Customs and Border Protection and with the U.S. State Department to pursue this lead. There was no record of Pat Guild obtaining or using a passport, or any record of him leaving the country, quote, from 1991 to present. The national systems also showed no leads. No further activity on Patrick's social security number or legal activity under his name. Outside of the national systems, there was one blip of activity, not long after Pat's last contact. Per Metro Nashville police records, Detective Filter discovered that someone, someone using a totally different name, had used Pat Guild's social security number in 1993, in Colorado, where electricity had been established at a home. But that utility had only been on for a few months, and there were no traces of Pat in the state. Why was Pat's social security number used? It's something we've seen before, especially before the digital age, when people would often give random false numbers when establishing utilities or filing insurance or to the police. Once in a while, those random choices will match up with a missing person. Could it have been Pat? It's a possibility. It was much easier to change your name in the early 1990s. Several of the people discussed in this episode changed their names without the formality of legal paperwork to further distance themselves from domestic violence or other life events. According to one interview we did, an individual was able to go in and request a driver's license with a new name on it, and that was all it took. Pat could have done the same. Way back then, Pat could have obtained another identity, and he could, by a small smidgen, he could be alive living under a completely different identity. But like the detective said, typically when you live a certain lifestyle, just by changing your name isn't going to change the lifestyle that you live. So therefore, if he was always in trouble with the law by changing his name, isn't going to keep him from getting in trouble with the law. So that's why I'm under the impression that he's deceased. He's either deceased and nobody has ever been found, or he's deceased as a John Doe, or he's living under another identity because he's definitely not living under the identity of Patrick Allen Guild with his given social security number. For a while, Shannon thought she had a break in the case. She thought that she discovered Pat's alias. 
Through research, she discovered a man with very similar features to Pat who'd been living in local Nashville encampments and using a name that happens to be shared by one of Pat's brothers. It was one of the possible leads that she took to police. So I was like, like I said, at one point convinced that it was this guy and he was just living under an alias because a lot of homeless people do that. They fly under the radar that, you know, they don't want any sort of paper trail, whatever. And I sent Detective Filter all this information about this John L. guy. And I was like, can you please find out if this is Pat living under another identity? And he, the guy ended up being in jail and they ran like a fingerprint scan and he was like, it's not him. But he was like, very good looks on your part because it was just, he, there were so many things about him that from all the things I had seen and heard about Pat over the years that I was like, is this him? Like, is this him? But yeah, it, the detective was like, no, we ran a fingerprint scan and it's not him. And I was like, ugh, all right. Though John L.'s legal name and fingerprint weren't a match for Pat, Shannon's level of research was very impressive, especially since she'd never even been to Nashville. But besides travel across the country, she's done every other possible thing she can to try and find Pat. I submitted some DNA to CODIS. I guess there were no hits, like no matches in the CODIS database. And then I submitted DNA to Ancestry and I match his sister on there, but he's definitely 100% my biological father. Like his family all remembers me when my mom was pregnant, when my mom was married to him. You know, they all know who I am from when I was a tiny little baby. But other than that, I mean, where else can I put my DNA besides Ancestry? I mean, I guess you can upload it to like GEDmatch and all that. Um, I also have said to the detective, you know, when he, when my mom left in the early eighties, everything was a paper trail. There was, there was no electronic anything. You could literally buy someone's social security number and then just become a whole new person. We do want to note that after that interview, Shannon did upload her DNA profile to GEDmatch. She did so in early March of this year. If there is a possibility that an investigative genetic genealogist is working on a case that turns out to be Pat's, Shannon wants to be sure that he is identified. Reflecting on the depth of her search and on her efforts, here's what Shannon told us. His brother, Johnny, says all the time, he's like, I hope that someday we find him so that I can tell him, like, all the things that you did to try to find him. Because, yeah, I'm the only one that tries to even look for him. His family doesn't look. Nobody cares. He's burned all of his bridges. At this point, I just... There's nothing else I can do. I filed a missing persons report without physically doing the legwork in Nashville because there was a point for about a year that I was calling like homeless shelters and homeless newspapers. And, you know, when you're calling somewhere over the phone, first and foremost, most people will not divulge any information to you over the phone. And I've never been to Nashville in my life. So without actually doing the footwork, which now that I have the detective, once I filed the missing persons, he's able to do the footwork and he still comes up empty handed. So, you know, I I just, I've come to terms with the fact that I've done everything that I 
think I can possibly do to try to find this man. And there's nothing else. Like I said, I've spent hours upon hours upon hours on the internet, making phone calls, reaching out, emails. The lady that wrote that article, I reached out to her. And she emailed me back and said, holy cow, because her name is like a very broad name. What would Shannon do if she found Pat? That's something she's considered often. Her situation is different from many of the family members featured on this show. She's searching for someone who she doesn't know, who may not want to be found, and whom her mother actively feared. So Shannon hasn't come up with a clear answer to that question. I honestly don't know. And multiple people have asked me that, like, well, what if he does surface? Like, what are you going to do? I think it's all situational for me. First and foremost, I don't think he's alive. So if he's deceased and it comes to fruition that he's deceased and we can prove that, you know, without proof, it nothing means anything to me. I need proof. Um, so if I find out that he's deceased, then, you know, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. Um, it would just be able, I would just be able to close that chapter of my life and have a final answer. It would be sad because I don't, you know, I'd never be able to meet him. But again, it's the closure for me. It's the final answer for me. So I think if he was deceased, I would just be able to close that chapter and just, you know, keep chugging along at life. If he was alive, that's a whole different game changer. If he was alive, it would be a situational thing for me. Is he alive living homeless? Is he alive? you know, does he live with, does he have a whole family? You know, that is just like, it's a situational thing. Like what I don't, it's a circumstantial, you know, what are the circumstances surrounding him if he's alive? So if he's living homeless, then either way, I'd probably want to meet him. If he said no, then, you know, I've done this for so long. I would just say, okay, you know, that's what he wants. He doesn't want anything to do with me and that's fine. But again, I, I would still have closure. I would still have an answer. I have walls around me so high from this and the searching that I just try to keep myself guarded at all times about finding him because of the what ifs, you know, what if he is dead? What if he is alive? Um, how could I have affection for someone that I don't really even know? I think that I'm very numb in, in feelings when it comes to that. The only thing that I, I feel is sometimes frustration and, and sadness because it's always a dirt, you know, there's, it's just I, a dirt road that, has no end to it in sight like there I can't even see a light at the end of the tunnel you know obviously it's a sad situation but at the end of the day it still does not curb the fact that I want closure and I think that's why my mom is always so willing to try to help me even though she tells she told me from day one if you find him do not tell him where I am. Like, I don't want him to know anything about me. She doesn't want any part of it. 
if he were to surface anywhere, but she's willing to give me whatever information she can. So I don't know. It, it, yeah, it sucks that that's what I hear about him. And that's, you know, that that's the kind of person that he was, but it, to me, it does not matter. I still want the closure. We've interviewed many families who've had trouble filing a missing persons report for their loved one for hours or days or even weeks after they went missing. Reading through a file established nearly 30 years later, after a disappearance with thorough investigation and communication with the family member, stands in pretty stark relief to other stories we've told. It's different from another Nashville case we've covered in the past, Lorraine Nicholson's disappearance in April of 1998. All of the cold cases we've recently covered, from the Nashville Jane Doe's to Ricky Frank's and Pat Guild, have regular activity on their files. And when there is family involved, they're kept up to date. In fact, Detective Filter brought us the Jane Doe's and Pat Guild to feature on the show himself, after we covered Ricky Frank's. Brooke spoke with him about his approach to casework, contacts, and balance. I believe what's important is that the investigator instills confidence with the family that everything can be, that everything that can be done is being done. I think the longer a case goes unsolved, you are more likely to develop a relationship with the family just by default versus a case that gets solved rather quickly. Um, oftentimes your contact with the family is very minimal at that point because you're moving on with the next case and any contact the family has with the criminal justice system is usually with the district attorney's office. So, but I think it is important for there to be a, a good relationship between the lead investigator and, and family members. I, I think it makes for, a better investigation and it just overall makes trying to relay information much smoother because there we've got so many cases that there just really isn't a whole lot going on with them and so when you when you some when you end up calling a family and just checking in with them uh, they always seem to be appreciative that that somebody is at least thinking about that case, that somebody is at least thought enough to give them a call. I really started noticing that a lot here in the, in the last year. We've teamed up with a local news station and been running a, a series that highlights a lot of old cold cases and missing persons cases that hadn't gotten a lot of attention maybe back in the day or haven't gotten a lot of attention in recent years. And just in doing some research on those cases, when I look at them, there's, there really isn't anything that can be done with the case at the moment. There's no, um, no avenues to pursue, but when you call the family and, and kind of let them know and explain to them about the, the TV series that that we're doing with the news and and that we're trying to highlight some of these cases in hopes of maybe reminding people about them, letting them know that's still unsolved, or, you know, give a give it a chance to possibly generate some tips. They 
always seem to be, uh, I don't want to say they're necessarily excited about it, but, but very appreciative or very happy that somebody has actually looked at their case that maybe they hadn't gotten a call about or heard anything from anybody at the police department in 10 or 15 years. And now here's a chance for them to put something out there in, in the public domain um, in, in hopes of maybe getting something started again. You know, it's important that, uh, that these families are kept in touch with it just when with a with our department and having over 500 cold cases and that's just homicides we just there's only seven of us in the unit and we can't uh, unfortunately be calling family members all the time to give you know just to check in with them or or anything like that but you know we always or at least i always encourage family that if if they ever want to just check in with us that feel free to give us a call and we'll we'll certainly talk to them about their about their case now obviously especially in a homicide investigation there's always going to be one or two things that we just that we don't tell anybody about at all but other, you know, otherwise, I usually try to give keep the family up to date and let them know what's going on. I think that's one of the things that kind of helps keep a good relationship with the family because they at least they feel as though they're being kept abreast of the progress of the investigation. But it, yeah, in a case like this, there just really isn't that much to work with. So. There, there really isn't anything to hold back at this point because they're just we there we just don't have enough information to even be able to say exactly what happened other than that we believe that he was involved in some kind of altercation and, and possibly killed but we don't have any proof of that we and, and we don't you know for all we know I mean there there's still a, a chance that he could still be alive out there somewhere just living under uh, another identity. I, I think it's slim. I think it's a slim chance that that's what's happening, but there's always that possibility and we got to keep everything in mind as we move forward. In Patrick Allen Guild's missing persons case, Shannon and the Metro Nashville police need your tips to go any further. They can trace Pat through about December of 1991, when he was still in Nashville, Tennessee. But after that, there's no clear record. Pat may have met with foul play. He may have died of an accident, or an overdose, or natural causes. He may have moved out of the city or the state, and he could be using a different name. There have been suggestions online that Pat could be a match for a particular nameless profile, Specifically, a man who died in February of 2006 in Florida. His name is profile is UP9397. This man is described as between 45 and 65 years of age and was discovered only minutes after his death. Per NamUs, quote, decedent was a natural death at his residence. He was identified visually by his wife, with the ID being confirmed by Prince in 2006. However, it was recently discovered that the decedent was living under a fake identity of, quote, Stephen A. Mason for 10-plus years. Real identity is unknown. 
Here's what caught the eyes of the internet. A Yosemite Sam tattoo on the decedent's right forearm was a main factor for a comparison to Patrick Gilt. The decedent's height, measured at 5'9", is significantly shorter than Pat's, though the eye color was listed as blue. When we asked Detective Filter about this possible match, he compared the decedent's fingerprints to Pat's, and he was able to exclude the man known as Stephen Mason as a possible match. That man remains unidentified. Patrick Pat Allen Guild was last seen in late 1991. At the time of his disappearance, he was described as a 32-year-old white male with brown hair and blue eyes. He usually had a beard or a mustache. Pat was between 6 feet and 6 foot 4 inches tall and 140 to 175 pounds. He's described as having a scar beside his right eye and a tattoo of the Warner Brothers cartoon character Yosemite Sam on one arm. According to The Charlie Project, Pat's nose had been broken several times. If you or anyone you know has any information, please reach out to Metro Nashville Police Department. You can contact Detective Filter at Metro Nashville Police at 615-862-7803. You can also call Nashville Crime Stoppers at 615-74-CRIME or 615-742-7463. Callers remain anonymous and may qualify for a cash reward. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. And if you try out any of the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And please take a moment to rate and review our show in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to pre-order my book, which covers a year of my life working on a Jane Doe case and the world of forensic scientists who resolve unidentified persons' cases, you can find a link in our show notes. It's called Lay Them to Rest, and it's out this October. Pre-ordering the book is a big factor in its success, so I appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us continue this work, and we're so grateful. On Patreon, you can get early, ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. There are also occasional extras like video live streams and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, we've begun that feed as well. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, our monthly donations are going to Season of Justice to support their testing and family grant initiatives. 